Hello there, my fellow sophisticated creatives. Welcome to JCV Art Studio from the dressing room. Ozzy is in the studio with me. I think he has settled down. This is episode eight. My name is Joanna and I am your host. Thank you for joining me. Today's guest is Seamus Heffernan, the author of Napalm Hearts, which is described as a cinematic neo-noir, and he is also the author of Ten Grand, which is a gritty return to London's underworld and gangster-run gambling dens. Welcome, Seamus. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. So I asked a co-worker who had taken a film studies class in university to define what a cinematic neo-noir noir film was. And she told me, she gave an example. She first example she said was the Maltese Falcon. And she also basically said movies where femme fatales destroy a man's life. <laughs> that sounds more like my dating history than, uh, than my approaching novel writing. Uh, I, I think uh, I may have to politely disagree with your friend. I think that she's describing a uh, classic film noir, like uh, like Maltese Falcon is a, an example, as is the uh, Big Sleep, uh, Double Indemnity. Uh, and she's exactly right. Uh, you know, it's quite off a uh, big, big hallmark of that genre of film is a, uh, a doomed man making bad decisions at the behest of a Lady Macbeth-esque femme fatale. Uh, I think that, that neo-noir is just kind of a cute way of describing similar films uh, that happen to be in color and <laughs> take place a little <laughs> bit later. Uh, probably the most famous example is uh, is Chinatown. Uh, but I mean, it's not necessarily limited just to uh, period crime pieces. A lot of people argue that Blade Runner uh, with Harrison Ford is a sci-fi neo-noir. So really? it has those, yeah, it has those elements of... Uh, you know, uh, a lot of rain, darkness. The lighting is really important in, in noir storytelling and filmmaking. Uh, and so lots of use of shadow. Again, there's a uh, uh, a, a, a woman who leads him astray. Although I would have to point out, uh, and I, I'm probably going to catch a little help for this. I, I do like Blade Runner quite a bit. I do think, however, uh, it's not really much of a detective movie <laughs> he doesn't do an awful lot of detecting uh but it you know, it stands up quite well okay okay interesting okay i i liked the last blade runner oh yeah it's excellent i actually think and, it's superior to the original yeah and i made a mistake on my last po- podcast we had base we had talked a little bit about batman and i said it was Christian Slater was played in Batman. And just for the record, people, <laughs> I know I made I, I got my actors wrong. It was Christian Bale who played in Batman. So yeah, but I, I'm sorry. I had to make that correction because I thought I'd probably get some emails about that. <laughs> oh no, I mean I'm gonna my Twitter's probably gonna be filled with people screaming, oh, how could I say that Blade Runner 2049 is better than the original? So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I always like uh, our listeners to get an idea of the author and where they're from. And I understand you were born in St. John's, Newfoundland. Yes. And you lived in London for a lengthy period of time. Yes, I've been... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, okay. I was just wondering, 
how living in London influenced your writing? Um, quite a bit, uh, quite a bit. It was when I lived in London that I uh, I recommitted to trying to be a writer. Um, and unfortunately, I always knew that I wanted to write fiction, uh, but I kind of lacked that confidence to really dig in and give it a go. Uh, so I did. A, I, I've been very fortunate that I've been able to make a living through writing, uh, and I did a lot of work in London based around that. I did a lot of policy work and research. I also worked as a freelance journalist and did a lot of feature writing, which is you know another form of storytelling. Um, it, it always seemed to be in the background that I was going to finally turn it around and try to write fiction for myself. And finally, uh, due to certain events that uh, transpired in London, uh, my last year there, I was married. My marriage ended. I had a lot of time to myself to both uh, feel sorry for myself and make some bad decisions. And I came out of it about a year later, uh, moved back to Canada. And one of the things that I decided to change my life uh, was to stop wasting time, pretend to be a writer, and get down to the business of actually trying to be one. Okay, okay. For me, the third, my third one is going to take place in London, and there is something about that city I'm fascinated with. What do you think it is? What do you? Th- what is it that London has? I think that first and foremost, you know. London is a legitimate world city. It's a world capital in the way that only a handful of cities really are. You know, you've got Paris, you've got New York, Tokyo, London, um, you know, and it's, uh, it's, it's steeped in history. It's steeped in beauty, uh, tradition. uh, But it's also, you know, it also has a real tough seedy underbelly. Uh, And I think that really is, uh, you know, I think that's a really a perfect setting for any kind of uh, crime story. You know, you've got your glistening glass and steel towers and you've got your uh, you've got your rough and tumble pubs in the East End. Yeah. And and you do that. You do that very well. Um, and in 10 grand. Yeah. Um, so you've kind of answered what would was my next question. So it was when you returned from London that you decided you really wanted to write. Fic- well, you you wrote in London like you said, with your different jobs. Mm -hmm. So it was when you returned to Canada that you decided, okay, I'm going to write, was it your, my first novel or my first book? Was that? Uh, I wish I could tell you that it was as clear cut as that. I mean, it wasn't like I had this, you know, Tony Robbins personal awakening that, yeah, these are all my life goals and I'm just going to sit down and map out the path. Uh, I knew (laughs) that I wanted to do it. I also knew that I was taking a lot of steps to change things in my life that I wasn't happy about. Uh, going back home to Canada uh, was the smartest thing I ever did at that point in my life. Uh, it really helped me turn a lot of things around, really helped me get my, my head straight. And so I'd say uh, I probably started writing Napalm Hearts, gosh, uh, probably in, originally in 2010, maybe. And it all just kind of, uh, I remember I I owned a house in downtown St. John's and we'd had a big party the night before and I came downstairs and I was kind of cleaning up the kitchen and I had an idea for something. My laptop was there because we were playing music on it the night before. And I sat down and I wrote the first thousand words of what would become the novel. Uh, and it's like, I put it away and I kept coming back to it and I kept doing some journalism, but I always kept going back to the story. And then finally, a few years ago, I pulled out the draft and I said, okay, come on, man. Like, let's get it together. And I just kind of started blazing through it. 
The problem was that I was also in grad school at the time. Uh, wow. <laughs> so much to much to my uh, partner and my supervisor chagrin. I said, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I'll write the thesis. But listen, I got to tell you, this book is really coming together. Uh, <laughs> so when I finished my, uh, my when I turned in my major research paper for uh, to, uh, to satisfy the requirements of my master's, uh, I still had just enough gas in the tank to get through the last 10,000 words or so napalm hearts. And, uh, and then I took a little time off and worked up the nerve to start showing it to people. And that's how you got stuck talking to me tonight. I recognize some parallels, parallels there. Cause I know the first one I wrote, well, the, my first one, I was years and years and years ago. And then I put it aside and it's interesting about life events because it was, it was, a uh, it was, well, it was within a year of my mom's passing that I, I got that manuscript out again and just, it was, okay, you're going to read this. Is there something salvageable here to pursue this further? So interesting. We are a complicated bunch of writers, aren't we? <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. I, I'd say, uh, I say it's a fine balance between frustratingly and endearingly. So I tend to tilt <laughs> towards the former, unfortunately. Uh, but you know, there's, there's a bit of a trap of, you know, taking this a bit too seriously. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, it's something that we're really lucky that we get to do and we enjoy. I mean, it's not my full-time job. Uh, I'd love it was my full-time job, but I also would have loved to be an astronaut or play second base for the Yankees, but here we are. So I'm just happy enough that, you know, someone, someone's actually paid to read these things. And the publisher saw it and didn't think it was a complete dumpster fire and, you know, decided to take a chance on it. So I'm very, very fortunate. So when we did our test link, which um, for all my future guests, Yes, I really like doing the test links because I usually find out something that's not written on a website or an IG profile. Um, Seamus, you and I had talked about the types of novels we write. Do you write for escapism? Are you trying to educate your readers? What What are you trying to get across to your readers? Is Are they in for a good time or are you also trying to educate them? <laughs> Uh, under no way am I trying to educate anybody with my books. I'll leave that to, you know, your serious Jonathan Franzens and Tom Wolfs. Uh, you know, I want to read, I want to write the kind of stories that I used to love when I was a kid. You know, I want to write these really fast paced, rat-a-tat dialogue, detective stories, uh, that borrow very heavily from all those tropes that we've all enjoyed, you know, the rainy nights, the, uh, you know, the, the, the shabby men making shabby choices, the, uh, the femme fatales, all that stuff. I mean, I'm not, I mean, I'm trying to have some fun with it and I definitely have uh, played around with the tropes a bit, but I mean, you know, really the last thing that the world needs is another guy thinking he's a crime writer. And yet here I am <laughs> trying to get my elbow on that table. So no, there's no reinvention of the wheel. And, and uh, I, I can be pretty pretentious about some things, but I don't think I can be about this. You know, if you want a fun story, please by all means buy my book. You know, if you want a piece of serious literature, check out Joseph Heller or Martin Amos. I'm sure they'll serve you just as well. Yeah. I, for me, it's escapism. I want to enjoy the process and like, I hope someone else enjoys what I produce. It, you know, I want, I'm almost like entertaining myself in a way. Yeah. Oh yeah, um, for sure. It's, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's gotta be fun. If it's not yeah. fun, what are we doing, man? 
mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's enough things in life that can make you miserable. Why spend what precious free time you have crying over a keyboard? No, if it ever stops being fun, I'm not going to do it. You know, and right. you know, the, the reason I kept coming back to wanting to do this, you know, it was when I when I was a kid, and I, I remember discovering books and writing my own stuff when I was in school and teachers encouraging that and saying, oh, well, you could be a writer. Uh, I don't know if I should thank them or hunt them down for sport now in retrospect, <laughs> but uh, I'm sure that they were well-intentioned. They just set me on this path. But it's always in the back of my head. You know, you only get to be not terrible at a couple of things in life. And I'm not terrible at this. So I'd like to keep doing it for a little while longer and not feel that I kind of wasted what passes for talent in my That's existence. That's a cool outlook. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. If we had met ten years ago, I probably would have been more fiery. But uh, you know, okay. <laughs> okay. fatherhood may have mellowed me. Yeah, yeah. See, and and the other thing we discussed is uh, what comics we read. So, oh yeah. Now I know I was um, Archie. <clears throat> you know, Archie's Betty and Veronica. Yep. What What did you read? Oh, I read all that stuff. Like when you were a little kid, you know, I remember uh, my parents or my grandmother would buy it for me at the at the grocery store to get those big, thick, you know, Archie Double Digest type books or stuff like that. Um, yeah. But I wanted to read everything. You know, I'd nag my father to take me to this used bookshop uh, in downtown St. John's and you know, I'd buy all these old paperbacks and uh, and comic books, anything I could get my hand on, uh, because you know, unless you've got income. You can't really be a serious comic collector. You can't commit to buying stuff every month. Yeah. You know, so when you're like, eight, you know, nine or ten years old, that's just not. Good. So I was grabbing everything I get my hands on, everything from you know the Star Wars comic adaptations to Justice League and Teen Titans and you know Infinity Incorporated, all of it. And then when I got a little older and a bit more uh, discerning, um, you know, I always kept coming back to Batman, which I suppose is no real surprise to somebody who likes writing detective stories uh you know however you know i i think perhaps a little bit of the the shadow has come off the cowl for me a little bit with batman i'm becoming increasingly uncomfortable idolizing a billionaire considering the world political climate (laughs) yes uh, but I also, uh, I, I used to read, God, I read a lot of Howard Shaken. I remember like an American flag. I read uh, Andy Helfer's great run on The Shadow uh, with uh, DC. Uh, of course, stuff like Dark Knight and Watchmen, those were like the big game changers. And uh, there's a great comic that got forgotten about. I, I haven't looked at it since I was probably in junior high. I wonder if it would still hold up. But uh, Denny O'Neill... Uh, who I think unfortunately has passed away. He was a very, very accomplished comic writer for DC, did Batman, Green Arrow, like a whole bunch of stuff. Um, you know, and he always was trying to push really hard on social justice issues and political issues. And he was this great comic uh, called The Question based on one of the old Charlton uh, characters. And it was very, it was very, very well done and, and really steeped in this kind of Zen philosophy for this uh, this vigilante journalist. And it was the only comic I ever remember having that had a recommended reading list <laughs> on the back mm-hmm. every issue. Really? Okay. Yeah, so I remember going to my uh, my uh, uh, my school librarian and saying, "Hey, do you have a copy of Zen and Motorcycle Maintenance?" <laughs> like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm reading this comic. I'm like, oh, okay, God. <laughs> 
if our readers our readers are wondering why I'm bringing up comics, it's because in a way you're you're creating the future readers of tomorrow and I will vouch for it because I used to hate reading as a child and I would I would read comics and I like I've mentioned it on other podcasts. My mom asked my sister, "Can you please?" I think my mother was getting kind of exasperated and said to my sister, "Can we're going to the library. Can you please find Joe something that she'll like to read?" And just trailing after my sister in the public library, and she grabbed a bunch of books and she just she held one up and she goes, "What do you think of this one?" You know, like there's seven years difference between us. So, you know, she was maybe in her early teens and I was still, you know, a kid and she did, she found one. And for me, it was the Bobsy twins. And that was the game changer for me. And I, I, then I, I wanted to read every Bobsy twin book, you know? Yep. So, yeah. Who were your influences in terms of mysteries and mystery novels or as, as you're growing up? Um, I'm meaning as a teenager or in your early 20s, what what did you gravitate to? This is always the part of the interview where I feel I should apologize to so many of my colleagues because I'm not actually a massive, massive crime fiction reader. I mean, I have read, uh, you know, I, I have read quite a bit of it, but it's not something I would consider myself an expert or a specialist in. So I've read some of the classics, you know, like Hammett and, and Chandler, um, you know, in terms of modern crime writers, you know, you got your um, uh, James Elroy, Elmore Leonard, I've read those guys' stuff, and uh, uh, Tana French out of Ireland. She's good. Rankin, I like Ian Rankin in Scotland. I mean, it's uh, it's a good trick he's got going there. Yeah, I think he puts out a book every year, uh, and uh, it's all part of this big, huge, sweeping series. The the Rebus character, it's 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 excellent. But I I'd say the the bulk of my reading. Uh, was always what is rather uh, tiresomely called uh, adult contemporary fiction. So, you know, Bertie Sinellis, Jay McKinnery, Douglas Copeland, uh, you know, I devoured so many books when I was in London because there were so many bookshops and there was just so much stuff you could find cheap. You know, Ethan Kanan, uh, Murakami. So, uh, interesting enough, a lot of those guys do have some crime fiction overlap. Uh, but when I was a kid, I would say that the thing that was the biggest influence in terms of me wanting to write uh, detective stories was television and movies, um, you know, stuff like Crime Story, stuff like Miami Vice, you know, movies like The Untouchables, uh, you know, Naked City. Uh, you know, I remember staying up late and watching like The Avengers, uh, not the superhero one <laughs> when I was when I'd stay over at my grandmother's place. You know, I think those things all had a, a huge impact on me because there's a real visual element to yes. uh, to to crime and detective uh, storytelling. So, you know, if you're a little kid and your definition of good and evil is kind of defined by men in trench coats and hats and uh, and and guns and uh, <laughs> and rainy city streets uh that's probably going to stay with you for a long time so that i would say that those things were that was a big big influence on me when i was a kid so for me and i i want i don't think it's the avengers but it was mrs peel yeah i oh my god she was an influence for me and for some reason i remember mrs peel or miss peel and she had on okay the visual she'd have on her her dress and the knee-high black boots. And I just, 
I thought she was amazing. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I get I get it about because I also love movies and I love yep. watching movies and thinking, oh, they set that scene up really well, you know. So yeah, let's get into Ten Grand. Sure. Can you give our readers a summary of who Thaddeus? Did I get that right? You did. Okay, I've been practicing. Okay. Um, <laughs> a summary of who Thaddeus Grail is and what 10 Grand is about. Uh, well, uh, Thaddeus and I go back a ways, and uh, he is uh, uh, an American private investigator based in London, England. Um, he enjoys dual citizenship because of his, his parents. And uh, he is uh, introduced in the first book, Napalm Hearts as a private investigator who specializes in infidelity cases. Now, I actually have my probationary PI license, and I can tell you that the work is actually very tedious. <laughs> and here in British Columbia, the work is like 90% insurance fraud investigations. But you can still make a, a good living doing infidelity cases. And the reason is, by the time that someone comes to you and says, I think that my husband or wife is having an affair, their husband or wife is definitely having an affair. So it's easy money if you can kind of put up with the fact that you're signing the death warrant of people's marriages. Uh, so when we're introduced to Thaddeus, he's doing this work and he's kind of bored. You know, he's comfortable, he's successful, and he's able, he's offered a chance to work a real case in 10 grand. There's a young woman who's gone missing and her older rich husband, member of London's ruling class, asked Thaddeus for his help and the uh, necessary complications and hijinks ensue we get the 10 grand it takes place about a year later he's decided that he doesn't want to work anything to do with infidelity cases at all anymore and he's specializing in corporate background checks and insurance tail jobs and stuff like this and then he has a new colleague who offers him a chance to find someone else who has gone missing uh, so that's kind of the setup for the two books but if you're asking me who he is as a person uh, I think that he is, uh, if the narration style is anything to go with, not terribly prone to introspection. And I'm not, I don't think that he's terribly always reliable as a narrator. I think that, uh, I think the subtext of both books is that he's actually quite sad. I think that he's a very lonely guy in a lot of ways. And like a lot of uh, lonely, uh, sad men, uh, seems for whatever reason, resolute to keep making the wrong choices <laughs> that lead to that state of mind. Uh, so one of the questions that when Napalm Hearts came out and I was doing press for it, uh, one of the questions, and I suppose anybody who writes a first-person novel gets this, you know, is your protagonist you? And I say, no, my protagonist is not me. I'm very, I feel very friendly uh, towards Thaddeus and, you know, very protective, and he still drops in every once in a while to have a chat. Uh, but I think that he's more what I could have become if I had stayed in London and hadn't and hadn't taken those steps to kind of right the ship as it was listing, so to speak. Yeah, yeah I, I got the feeling that he was lonely. I finished yeah. 10 grand. I stayed up late one night just because I, I wanted to get I wanted to finish it. I wanted to see what happened. And I, yeah, I'd say he is lonely. Um, that is his. And is it Asia is his new colleague? Asia, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so curious, Thaddeus is not a common name. Where does that name come from? I was gifted with a somewhat esoteric name uh, that I did not enjoy as a child, although I feel it's kind of, uh, I've kind of grown into it. Uh, and so I suppose I wanted to stick my 
protagonist <laughs> uh, with a similar experience. See how see how it feels for somebody else. Uh, the, but the name itself came from, and I wish there was a cooler story than this. It's uh, <laughs> it's from an old Donald Sutherland character in this uh, '80s movie called Heaven Help Us, which is a a really underrated dramedy about a Catholic boys' school in New York in the '50s. And um, anyways, Donald Sutherland's character is uh, Brother Thaddeus. And I remember being a kid and seeing the movie, and I loved the movie. But the name always stuck with me, and I really liked it. And so when I was putting together, you know, in my head, you know, who my narrator was going to be, who the uh, protagonist was going to be, uh, Thaddeus kind of fit. And I chose Grail because, you know, what's a detective doing except looking for something? Yeah. Like I said, I wish it was a cooler story, but here we are. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I find I write in scenes. And once I did an outline for a novel all the way to the end, and after I was done, I no longer wanted to write the novel because I knew what happened. <laughs> when I read a description of your novel as cinematic, I'm wondering how do you write? Do you write in? It doesn't, from what you said earlier, it doesn't quite sound like you write in a chronological order. Do you write scenes and then kind of weave everything together? Well, this is the age-old question, isn't it? You know, are you a planner or are you a pantser? Um, <laughs> and um, I, I definitely lean a bit towards pantsing. Um, but with long-form fiction, you really have to have kind of a rough idea uh, yeah. of the direction you're going. But I like to give it a, enough room to breathe that if I change my mind or they take me in a different direction, I'm not going to hold it against them. Um, yeah. My friend, uh, A.J. Devlin, uh, who's also a Port Moody crime writer, uh, Ellis Award-winning uh, Port Moody crime writer uh, for his first book, Cobra Clutch. We have this argument all the time. Uh, A.J. has got to outline everything down you know, to a T before he can begin. And uh, I can't do that. I can't do it. I've, I've got to give myself a little room to, to, at the very least, have the hope that I might surprise myself as it goes along. Right. And I find I, I, I write a number of scenes. And then after a while, I think to myself, OK, I've written lots of scenes here. I, I, I better check <laughs> if there's some sort of order to this, to this chaos and yeah. if, try to keep some of this in check. But yeah. Yeah. I think, okay. I think it's telling that you you chose the word scenes. Uh, whereas most writers would say chapters, I say scenes as well. Uh, yeah. The only kind of formal writing training I ever did uh, was I did a screenwriting course when I was in London with Robert McKee. He's some famous script guru guy, and he does these tours. And yeah, you know, they lock in a room with him for three days and something ridiculous, like almost thirty hours. Um, I was working as a journalist at the time. And I thought it would help with my feature stuff, but I, le I learned an awful lot about the not just the, the craft of screenwriting uh but how the whole idea of story the whole idea of a three-act structure the whole idea of the hero's journey the whole idea of creating stakes the whole idea of establishing you know what is your protagonist's goal and what is messing up his life that he he or she can't achieve that uh so kind of translating those into fiction or i should say narrative novel fiction was a real real good fit for me and plus crime books i mean you know they they should read like movies i mean yeah. you know again not to belabor the point but you know no one is gonna 
no one's confusing this for Nobel Prize winning literature. This is supposed to be stuff that you read on the beach or while you're stuck in line at DMV. It's supposed to be fun, you know, and I'll keep saying that. I'm not embarrassed or ashamed of that. I think you can make points. I think that you can certainly have, you know, serious themes running between your work. I mean, anytime you're writing about, you know, death and mayhem and bad choices, that's going to be there. But, you know, I don't think I'm Ernest Hemingway. I'm 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 fine writing the stuff that I write. And I hope people enjoy it. I, I do, I do, and we'll, we'll get to. It's interesting that you mentioned stakes. We'll get to that. I'm trying to reword a question, which I'm sure all writers have heard far too many times, and I'm sure you've been asked this question many times. Okay, so writers play the what if game without giving away the story. What was the original what if that came to mind with regards to ten grand? You have two storylines in 10 Grand that nicely intersect. What was the first what if? I think I've got an idea here. What if a seemingly boring, steady, unspectacular, yet somewhat wealthy person just completely disappeared and turned everyone else's life upside down? (laughs) I know the answer because I read the book. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. And the uh, the B storyline uh, about Thaddeus's friend uh, that was not planned. I, I I like Mr. Brock quite a bit. I have a great sympathy for him. I wanted him in the book, and then when I threw him in there, I was thinking, "Oh hell, what are we going to do with him?" And then I thought, "Oh, he's a he's a total screw up." So that's what's going to happen. <laughs> Wow. He's going to be yet another shabby man making a shabby, shabby decision. <laughs> and everyone else is going to pick up the pieces. I mean, it's not that hard. You just create sympathy for somebody and make their life a complete misery. And boom, there you go. You got a story. Well, here's the thing. We're talking about Taylor Brock. Uh, this whole last week, I've been on vacation from the day job. And I was sitting there, you know, on the sofa. I had I had your book. And, you know, it was lunchtime and I had, oh, it was my treat. It was a croissant with brie cheese, melted brie cheese and like cranberries on it because my, my favorite coffee shop in Victoria used to make this. So I'm reading your book and I'm eating this croissant and uh, I, I <laughs> it's in the beginning of chapter eight when Thaddeus meets up with Taylor and I'm not, gonna, <laughs> going, I'm not going to give it away. But I took a bite and I'm reading. And then I literally, I went, oh, crap, right? <laughs> and my husband's sitting there and he goes, what? And I went, oh, crap, right? <laughs> I keep reading. And he's like, what? So I explained to him what's happening. I've now stopped eating this croissant, okay? <laughs> and my husband says, oh, that guy, you know, and he's meaning Taylor Brock, you know? So uh, that that was very, oh, that was enjoyable. And it's just... It was like you're watching a train wreck. And every time Taylor opens his mouth, it just gets worse (laughs) and worse. And you almost want to say, Taylor, shut up, (laughs) right? Like, stop talking (laughs) or or, or, hero here, you know? Yeah. Your your dialogue in your novel is really tight. And um, do you ever, uh, because I I just did this last week, overhear a conversation and uh, think I've got to use that. Um, I can't say it with conversations, but I can say it with a lot of other things. Like I'll see something in the news or, uh, I'll hear an example of a crime. I think, ah, yeah, but what if it was twisted around that way? Um, 
No, I haven't cribbed too much from real people's conversations. I have cribbed a lot from their lives, and I hope that they're okay with that. But you know, you're gonna be fr- you're gonna be friends with a writer. You you buys your ticket, you takes your chances. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and I just want to go back. First of all, that's a really nice compliment about the dialogue. I hasten to add that the reason that I write the dialogue the way that I do is I'm just really, really uh, lazy about writing like these big flowing paragraphs. And I just like keeping everything moving really quickly. So <laughs> there's like the, the prose is pretty lean and the dialogue just lets everything kind of just chug along. Yeah. I don't want to lose my reader, you know? You know, we all have our style, but do we have that style because it's the absolute best way that we can present our art or do we have that style because it's just the easiest thing for us yeah 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 correct yeah yeah so with each subsequent book okay do you feel there is a greater pressure to produce an even better story or at least make it just as good as the previous one? Oh, yeah i think that uh yeah for sure and, and i mean pressure is a bit of an odd term you know it's not like you know, I'm not an air traffic controller or a brain surgeon. Uh, you know, I play make believe and every so often I get a few bucks to do it. So, but the pressure such as it is, is more about, you know, can you tell a good story? And I think that that's the, the obligation. I mean, as writers, we, we make a lot of promises to our readers that if we're not terrible at our craft, we'll be able to keep. And the most important one, of course, is that, you know, if you give me like your, 12 or 13 bucks or whatever it is, you know, I'll give you a couple of hours that are going to be fun and twisty. And at the end you go, ah, Oh, okay. That was pretty good. Uh, I can't say I'm trying to write a better story just because, you know, like I, I still think t- napalm hearts might be a little better than 10 grand. And I still get emails from people saying they like 10 grand more. So who can I, who am I to say, you know, okay. it's a, it's a subjective process. That's interesting. Um, Because that kind of leads into what I'm thinking is, um, has it been any different writing 10 grand compared to Napalm Napalm Hearts? Yeah, completely. Absolutely. Uh, And the reason was, uh, when I wrote Napalm Hearts, it was a hobby. And it just got out of hand. And then when I started showing it to friends of mine who were good writers or editors and would tell me the truth, which is important uh, because, you know, your friends want you to be successful. So when you show them your work, you've got to find friends who are actually going to tell you the truth instead of just patting you on the head and saying that everything's great. So the initial feedback from them was, you know, this isn't terrible. Yeah. You could probably do something with this. You know, I started sending it to publishers and someone said they want to take it. So I felt very fortunate. And then, you know, the very first thing that they said when we were discussing my contract was, you know, would you like to write a series? And I, I didn't really want to write a series. It hadn't even entered my mind. But they said, no, no, like genre books, like romance and crime, they do very well as series. And we'd like to, you know, we really like this world that you created. And we like, you know, we think that you've got an interesting protagonist. We'd like to write some more stories about them. And at the time, I had no idea about what a next story would be. I had no idea where I was going to go with these characters, really. I had no idea what was going to spin off from Napalm Hearts. So, of course, I said, yeah, absolutely. I'll do all that. Because they were offering a publishing contract, I would have said anything at that point. (laughs) So they said, great. Uh, So we put the first one out. It did pretty good. And so they said, excellent. Uh, We would like the second one uh, by X date. I was like, oh, God. So that (laughs) is a huge change. 
Because now yeah. you've gone from, oh, you know, maybe I'll take a look at that manuscript and knock out a couple of hundred words tonight and then, you know, watch Dark Knight for the 86th time or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas now it's like, holy hell, <laughs> i got to bang out about 60,000 words here in three months, uh, which was my own fault. I waited too long to start the second one. So I would work, you know, my old day job. And I'd come home, get a quick bite to eat, and grab my laptop, and I'd go out to this coffee shop, and I'd write for a couple hours, and I did that. And then got the second book in, and everybody was happy. Yeah. And uh, we had a lovely launch and some nice press, uh, and then it completely tanked. So there you go. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, and the reason was, because of the nature of my previous job, I used to work in politics. There was a federal election here in Canada. My boss was running for office. I ran for office. Yeah. I had to stop being a writer. And as you know, if you can't promote your work, yeah. uh, it's just going to die on the vine. And you can't run for office and spend all your time talking about your book. Right. It doesn't yeah. look great. Uh, yeah. And so the numbers just weren't there. And uh, so we're trying to figure out what we're going to do next. Uh, you know, I've got a lot of love and respect for my publishers, but it's a business. So I don't know what's going to happen with the next book. It's a good book. Oh, like, thanks. I hope people pick it up because it's a good book. You know, it's just, yeah. it's just the nature of the business. And so my new book is actually, um, it's not even part of the series. I had an idea for another story. So I started writing something else. I have a publisher who's interested in taking a look at it when it's done, but there's no guarantees with these things. Yeah. yeah. And maybe I'll go back and write a Thaddeus one and maybe we've sold enough copies that we get over the line. Yeah. And if neither of those things happen, hey, there's two two things out there in the world that I'm pretty damn proud of. We'll exactly. just keep going. It's just yeah. one word after the other, Joanna. It's just oh, one word after the other. That's right. That's right. Oh, wow. So have you ever surprised yourself with your writing? I mean, like you were mentioning about that scene in chapter eight with Taylor Brock. You you like, have you ever, something has come to you and you're like, oh, yeah, and you're just, you're pounding at the keys? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, yeah. yeah, that gets back to the point we were talking about before about, you know, it's got to be fun. When you're in that, you know, at, at the risk of sounding like an episode of Sports Center, when you're in the zone, uh, <laughs> and it's all kind of flying together. And, mm -hmm. I mean, you can almost see the steam coming off the keyboard. And yeah. It's it's a real rush. That's a pretty cool feeling. So when you're when you're at that point, you're writing. It's all flying together, and all those ideas that were circling your head are are finally kind of connecting and gelling, and it makes sense. You know that what if that you talked about before has logical steps that lead to a surprising yet satisfying conclusion. Like, oh yeah, I did that. That's, that's that was all right. So my favorite question is, if Thaddeus could step off the page and have a few words with you, what would he say? Is everything going to be okay? Okay. Interesting. I think somewhere inside of himself that he does want to be happy. Okay. I think that, uh, but I think that he's just a little too stuck in this point of his life and making bad choices. Um, but I think somewhere, you know, when he drops in and he and I have a chat every now and then, you know, I, I catch a couple of glimpses every now and then that he really wants it to turn around. I know what the next story is going to be for him after my new novel. Um, okay. And it's going to be a little different. It is going to be a crime story. But, uh, well, as you know, at the end of Tang Rand, it's kind of left on a significant cliffhanger. So we pick up there shortly after. 
Okay. And uh, as I said before, yeah, more complications and hijinks will no doubt ensue. Awesome. So Seamus, how do you define success and where do you hope to see yourself in five years? Oh, gosh. Um, Don't you love those questions? <laughs> I, I, yeah. It's not that old Woody Allen line. If you want to make God laugh, start making plans. Um, I, we have such an arbitrary idea of what, you know, what success is. Um, yeah. You know, and honestly, I, I, I'd rather frame it as, you know, what it, what it means to be happy and because honestly I, i've been feeling which is kind of a weird thing to say in this year of all years i feel very happy right now i feel very very fortunate you know uh my son is beautiful and, and healthy and happy i don't necessarily trust it uh <laughs> I'm, I'm a little worried you know what's your angle here mr happy go lucky uh but uh you know i'm very joking aside it, that's been a wonderful experience uh you know there's there's a young woman in my life who I'm very, very fortunate to have. And we're, we've been together now for over eight years and it's been great. Um, you know, I lost my job, my, uh, my day job when the pandemic hit and I've been picking up some freelance work and, uh, honestly, you know, everything's pretty good. It could be a lot worse. You know, you hear so many horrible, horrible stories of people who've lost so much during this time, you know, this is, if you're asking me about success, this might be the most successful I've ever felt. So Not bad a for an unemployed guy and failed political candidate. No, that, that's, a, that's a valid point because I know, I find I can get very easily kind of wrapped up in my own life. I'll, I'll admit it. I'll, I'll get wrapped up in, in what I'm doing and uh, things could be much worse off. So I, we're, we're, doing, we're doing pretty good, you know, yeah. yeah. So where can our listeners find you? And, and this is a new term I've learned um, on the socials. <laughs> uh, well, not surprisingly, there are not a lot of Seamus Heffernan's out there. However, there is a famous jockey in Ireland named Seamus Heffernan. So if you Google my name and you see a lot of horses, that's not my website. Uh, okay. However, if you Google my name and you see a lot of pretentious black and white photographs uh, of a moody looking guy in downtown Vancouver, that is my website. Please check it out. Uh, if you go on uh, uh, Facebook, uh, I have an author page, uh, Twitter, and Instagram. My handle is SG Heffernan. And uh, yeah, and my website, of course, is SeamusHeffernan.com. S E A M U S H E F F E R N A N. Oh, one last thing I'd, I'd, I'd like to add, if you don't mind. Um, one of the things that I really miss about the, about this year, obviously, we can't do readings and festivals and stuff like that because I really enjoyed meeting people and talking to them about writing. Um, and, you know, every so often you'd get like a nice email from somebody who read your book or had a question. Uh, if you go to my website, you can email me directly. Um, it comes through to my private, uh, private email account. Uh, if you have a question about publishing, you have a question about writing, uh, anything at all, I'd be, you know, people have been so uh, generous with their time with me. Uh, and it's, I feel it's the least I can do is to reciprocate. Uh, it might take me a few days to get back to you. Uh, that's the, <laughs> that's where we are right now as I'm trying to figure out fatherhood and writing the next book, but I will get back to you. I've gotten back to, I think everybody who's written this. So please, if there's anything I can ever answer for you, don't hesitate to reach out. That is great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, not at all. 
Well, Seamus, thank you for coming on my podcast. Um, and thank you for writing novels that make me stop eating my brie cheese and cranberry croissants. Okay. That part made me laugh because I always figured my books were best suited to like pizza and beer or chicken nuggets. So, <laughs> yeah, I felt so grand. <laughs> brie croissants. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I've arrived. Was, yeah, well, it, literally, it was this coffee shop in Victoria. I, you know, we lived there for over 20 years. And now we're back in a small town with this is all part of a transition. This isn't the, the final stop. And they're just, they're just a, few, a couple of things I miss from Victoria. So thank you very much, Seamus. And uh, have a good night. And um yeah, thank you for being on my podcast. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, for having me. And thank you to anybody who stuck out to the end to hear my ramblings. <laughs> okay, Shavis. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.